Hello, everyone. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you and, and you're at home in your living room, uh, would you turn them with me to Acts chapter 25? The book of Acts chapter 25. And before we get into our time in the Word this morning, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, thank you so much uh, again for this morning, for this great opportunity to, to worship you uh, together in spirit and in truth, Lord. And I know that even though we're separated and we're at home, that you want to minister to us and you want to speak to us and, and you want to comfort uh, those who are discomforted and those who have anxiety and, and those whose, whose lives are just seemingly out of control. Lord, we know that you are uh, sovereign and you're in control and that you care for us and you love us. And I pray that uh, and during this time in the word that that truth would be sealed to our hearts. Lord, be with us this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you're joining us uh, for service for the first time, uh, one of the things that we do as a church family here at Calvary Chapel Kelowna is we teach through the Bible expositionally, and, and so what that looks like is we'll choose a book in the Bible, and uh, we'll study through it, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We'll go through the whole book. Right now, we are in the book of Acts. We are in the 25th chapter, and we, in our studies, we've been following the ministry and, and work of a man uh, by the name of Paul. You might know him as Paul the Apostle. He is God's man. He is the man that God is using to build his church. And so far we have followed him through three missionary journeys. And right now he's kind of like on his last hurrah. His last plan that he really wants to accomplish is to head to Rome. You see, he wants to preach the good news of Jesus in, at Rome because it is at the center of the world, as it were, at that time. And he figures, if I can preach the gospel in Rome, then it will impact the entire Roman Empire, and because of that, it will spread to the entire world. And here's the thing, he will get there. He will arrive in Rome. But the road on which Paul arrives to Rome is much different than what his ideal plans might have looked like. In this chapter that we are on, in Acts chapter 25, he is on house arrest in Caesarea, and he has been for two years. In this chapter, he will get an audience uh, with a governor by the name of Festus. We'll talk about him. It will also set the stage for when he's going to have a meeting with a king named uh, king Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa the second, And all of this is part of God's plan, no doubt. Even though if we can get into his mind at some time, I wonder if Paul sometimes felt that there had been a major detour on his plans. Have you ever had a detour on your plans? I wonder if for any of you during this whole COVID-19 pandemic... Uh, if it ruined any travel plans for you or any vacation plans. You know, my mom, I know she's watching. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you. Uh, our son was born in January, 
And she had plans to come with my two sisters and, and nieces and my brother-in-law, and they were all going to come uh, to Canada to visit for the first time. My sister would have come to Canada for the first time, uh, maybe see some snow, take them up to the ski hill. And, and most importantly, they wanted to meet our newborn son, Josiah. And the exact week that they were planning on coming was the week that everything really began to shut down because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that was something that was uh, really unfortunate for us. Those are just recent and immediate plans. That's not the only type of plans that don't go the way that we expect. How about those, uh, those plans that go like this? This is what I want to do when I grow up plans. Do you remember when you were growing up what you said you wanted to do? Uh, when I grew up, I want to be, and we all like to script our life, this is what my house will look like, this is what my car will look like. I remember when I grew up, uh, when I was a kid and I was thinking about growing up, I wanted to drive a Porsche because, well, that was the coolest looking car in my Hot Wheels collection. Um, but that didn't happen. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, this is what my marriage is going to look like. And we think, well, maybe I'll be a firefighter or a doctor or a lawyer or a famous athlete or an astronaut. And very rarely does it go according to our plans. The Jews had an old proverb. It said this, mankind, we make plans and God, he breaks them. And God does have a wonderful plan for your life. And I, I know many of us have heard that and we know that. But here's the thing, that plan might not look exactly like your plan. If when I was a child, I would have made an exhaustive list, even in middle school or high school, an exhaustive list of the things that I wanted to do when I grew up, I don't think that being a pastor would have been on that list. And here I am in Kelowna, and I have joined the uh, great crew of COVID evangelists of pastors. Never thought I would find myself here, but here I am. I imagine Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, growing up in the school of Gamaliel, he thought, when I grow up, I want to be a rabbi. I'm going to be a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Many people believe he fulfilled that. But then God changed his plans. Back in chapter 9, when he was converted on the road to Damascus, God appeared to, the, to a man by the name of Ananias. And in verse 15 of chapter 9 in the book of Acts, it said this, But the Lord said to Ananias, to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, speaking of Paul. He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him... How many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I don't think that those were Paul's plans growing up. When I grow up, I want to be a rabbi who witnesses the risen Christ. And I'm going to make it my life's mission to love him and to tell the world about him. And I'm going to get beat up for that. A lot. He made plans. And God changed him. What the Lord tells him will be fulfilled. He will stand before Gentiles, rulers, kings, and the children of Israel. 
and he will suffer. Eventually, he will stand before Caesar Nero himself, the king over the Roman Empire at the time. And last week, in chapter 24, he stood before a judge by the name of Felix. And this chapter 25, he will stand before Festus. And again, he will eventually stand before King Herod II, King Agrippa II. And then we'll get into that. And we'll actually start in the last verse of chapter 24. Acts 24, verse 27. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So we see here that there is a transition of leadership in in the Roman government. Uh, When we left off in, in chapter 24 last week, there was a man by the name of Felix who was the governor at the time, and he was looking over that province that covered southern Israel, including Jerusalem. And we found that Felix was a corrupt man, and he was wanting to keep Paul bound for his own selfish gains, even to bribe him and gain money from him to keep him bound for a longer period of time. And he also wanted to save face with the Jews so that the Jews would like him. Uh, which would have been a great uh, deal to a, a Roman governor ruling over that province. And not only does the Bible tell us that he was a corrupt man, but so does secular history. And so in chapter 25, we have a new governor taking his place. And, and again, we get from history and this chapter. We do believe that the Bible is, is history. And uh, the, these are real people. They all have Wikipedias and, and all that on Google, right? They're, they're real people. And so we've, we've got a new governor. His name, he goes by Portius Festus. Some people call him uh, Porcius Festus. I like Portius Festus more. Uh, Porcius Festus sounds to me like a Greek feast uh, where they ran out of lamb and they had to have pork. Uh, so I don't like Porcius Festus as much. Porcius Festus is cool. Uh, so we'll, we'll call him that, or, or just Festus. Uh, he seems to be more of a righteous and fair governor than Felix was, more according to the book. And so in, in chapter 25, in verse 1, it says, Now Festus, the new, the new governor, governor, had come to the province after three days, And he went to Caesarea to Jerusalem. And so he gets to the province after three days. He goes from Caesarea to Jerusalem. In other words, it's like he left the White House and he went to Detroit, uh, you know, or New York or something. Uh, Caesarea is beautiful. That's where he would have ruled from. Uh, You could enjoy the beach. Uh, there in Caesarea, I've been there, it's, it's amazing, it's on the ocean, uh, you can enjoy sports events there, uh, but he comes to the province and after three days uh, of arriving there to rule, he heads straight to Jerusalem, uh, the hub of the area he would have ruled over. So not a lot of procrastinating uh, from, from, from Portius Festus here. Uh, he got to work in ruling over that province right away by heading to Jerusalem. And, and when he gets to Jerusalem, we'll find in verse 2, uh, then the high priest and the, and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. I find this fascinating. 
Festus, uh, the new governor, he arrives in Jerusalem, and before he can even go to the market to buy some falafel, uh, we have the high priests and the leaders of the Jews complaining to him about Paul right away. Uh, You know, there was really just this wanting him to bring Paul. Uh, This was their plan. They wanted him to bring Paul and so that they could lay an ambush to kill him. And I find this fascinating because it's been two whole years. And two years, when you really think about it, it can be a long time to hold on to this for. You know, they've, after two years, rather than maybe thinking, well, Paul has paid his dues, he's been, he's been in prison for long enough. These religious leaders can think of nothing else but their bitterness and their hatred of Paul, and they want to murder him. And these are some issues. First of all, what I would say to this and to you is that bitterness is an awful thing for all of us to hold on to. You know, the Bible tells us about how laughter is a good medicine for us. That's in the book of Proverbs. If laughter is a medicine, then bitterness and unforgiveness is a poison to us. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 says this, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness, this poison, springs up, causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. You know, when I say that laughter is medicine, I believe that it is, it is medicine and that it is actually good for us physically. I was doing some research this week and I heard that laughter actually helps with the digestive system. Maybe that's why it's good to laugh at the dinner table. I don't know. But, uh, and in the same way, bitterness being a poison, I believe it affects our emotional and our physical health. It can really... Uh, be a rampage on a person's life. And one of the saddest things is to see a person die in their bitterness. Two years for these Jews to hold bitterness towards Paul is a long time, but people hold on to bitterness for even longer than that. And you know, when when I call bitterness a poison... It is a poison not against the person that you are bitter towards. It is a poison against the person holding the bitterness. And most often, the people and their loved ones who are closest to them. It says, by this root of bitterness springs up and defiles many. And as believers, we're called to forgive. If God has given us grace and forgiven us of all of our sins... We should forgive others just as we have been forgiven. And we have religious leaders who don't want to give Paul a fair trial. They don't want to give him a fair trial because, well, in a fair trial, there would have been nothing guilty uh, to find him. You know, there would have been nothing to find him guilty for. But they wanted to ambush and murder him. And again, what, what I find is fascinating is that these are religious men, religious leaders. 
plotting lies and deception to ambush and murder this man because they couldn't convict him in a fair court. And how unfortunate, may I say, if your religion and in, in you following your God, you, you feel that you are serving him by, by lying, uh, by murdering, or by hating, even showing hatred uh, towards a person, I, w- I would say that there is something uh, seriously wrong with that. And that goes for the church, too. That goes for believers. If, if you think that in Jesus' name... Uh, that, that it's good to hold hatred towards a certain group of people or bitterness or, or uh, deception towards a certain group of people, I would say to you, repent from that because God would have you to be gracious. And we need, the world needs to see more of that from us. And we'll continue in verse 4. Acts 25, verse 4, But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. So he says, no, I'm not really going to have uh, Paul stay here in Jerusalem, therefore, or come to Jerusalem. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. That brings us to the middle of verse 6. Festus says Paul should be kept at Caesarea. I don't know if Festus had uh, some knowledge. It says that he, he stayed there with them for 10 days. I don't know if he had some knowledge of the intent that the Jews had to murder Paul. If it was maybe just some intuition and he, and he felt as a governor the right thing to do would be to try him at Caesarea. Either way, obviously, it was God that was in it. And again, supernaturally, but naturally, uh, sparing Paul's life. And so Festus says, no, we're, we're not going to try him here, here in Ju- Jerusalem. We'll, we'll go back to Caesarea. And if there's some of you that are leaders and, and have authority and you want to come down and accuse him, uh, we'll, we'll see if there's any fault in him. In the second part of verse 6, and it says, And the next day... Sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, so they they took up the offer to accuse him, uh, stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered himself, uh, this is Paul speaking, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have have I offended in anything at all. So this is a real rinse and repeat of this happening all over again. This happened in the last chapter. Paul is just before another Roman governor, but he's with Jewish accusers. And the trial, by the way, is very serious. His life could be on the line here if he is found uh, guilty. But once again, the charges that are being brought are baseless charges. They have no evidence or merit uh, uh, for that. And is it an interesting, you know, I find it interesting that when you read the Bible, that a common theme that runs through it is that false accusations follow many times the people called of God and the people that God uses. It almost seems to be like a biblical job description of God's servants. You think of Joseph and Moses 
and David and Daniel and Jeremiah. And then in the New Testament, you've got Paul the Apostle. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus himself. It's interesting. It seems to go with the territory. And I think it's one of the ways that Satan really likes to attack. And, and this is not only for, for uh, leaders in the church or, or pastors or, or what have you. That this is true of every believer. We know that Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren. And sometimes his accusations can be true, but his con condemnation and his conclusion of us is false. And I'm so thankful. Paul is heading into a courtroom here. I'm so thankful that in the courtroom of heaven... When we stand in front of the judgment scene of God, Satan is accusing us. But if you will accept him, Jesus will be your advocate. He'll be your defense attorney. You don't want to stand alone against the accusations of the enemy without Jesus and only you to defend yourself. Uh, because... Well, I know when I stand there, my righteousness is going to be zip. So, I'm glad I have Jesus to be an advocate for me. Verse 9, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, You know, Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? What a question. What a question that he has for, for Paul. And I think this is maybe the only one place where Festus shows a flaw here. He's wanting to be in, in good stance with the Jews. And he's not going to make Paul stand trial in Jerusalem. Uh, but he is maybe asking Paul if he's willing for, uh, to have a change of venue. Can you imagine? But Paul, because he, he has rights as a Roman citizen... Uh, Festus has to honor those rights as a judge. He can't just drag Paul to Jerusalem. And so we have the judge asking the prisoner, hey, would you mind standing trial over there in the place where the people really hate you? Do you mind doing that? Yeah, Paul's going to go, yeah, totally. No, he's not going to say that. Look at verse 10. So Paul said, I, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know, for I am an offender. For if I am an offender or committed anything deserving a death, I do not object to dying, but there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me. No one can deliver me to them. And hear the famous line, I appeal to Caesar. So here he is, he's standing trial in Jerusalem, uh, something that uh, would, if he was standing trial in Jerusalem, sorry, if he was brought there, it would have been completely unfair. Paul understands what's happening. He can see where this is headed. Uh, so he uses his rights as a Roman citizen. And I, and I do believe God uh, uses that uh, before Paul might have even known that it was going to be a, a tool in his toolbox for ministry. Uh, he is pulling out, as a Roman citizen that Paul was, he is pulling out his supreme right. And his supreme right was to appear before Caesar if he felt that he was denied fair justice. And so I wonder if as he says these words, I appeal to Caesar, 
if all the puzzle pieces are starting to come together for him. And again, I'm sure Paul, knowing his character uh, from what we have in Scripture, for these last two years, he is sharing the gospel with as many people as he can around him. i sure he might even see this time of house arrest as a time of rest uh, to take a break from the ministry. But I wonder sometimes if in his humanity, if he thought, how am I going to end up in Rome while I am in chains here in Caesarea, being constantly falsely accused, and there is this corrupt governor in place, Felix was. And now as he says, I appeal to Caesar. If he's wondering, okay, Caesar's in Rome, could it be possible that I would arrive in Rome, not despite my chains, but because of them. And God's sovereignty, his plan, always playing out. And then Festus, when he, and by the way, he will see Caesar Nero. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you've appealed to Caesar? Okay, well, to Caesar you shall go. He's got no choice. He's got to grant this to Paul. Again, it's his supreme right. And then verse 13, And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. So Paul is here. He's waiting. Some days pass. We don't know exactly how long. And here comes this king, uh, King Agrippa and Bernice. Their names will always be attached when you see it in Scripture here, and we'll talk about them. But they happen uh, to come to Caesarea to greet Festus, welcome him to his new role as governor, maybe, uh, you know, throw a party. And uh, King Agrippa and Bernice here, uh, they're going to be key players in the scene as Paul will eventually gain an audience with him and, and share his, his testimony with him in the next chapter. And so you might be wondering, who is King Agrippa and Bernice? Well, they, they were also rulers. They ruled to the north. This is King Agrippa II. Now, if you're like me and you read the names, you know, Agrippa and Herods in the Bible, it's just like this family's crazy and which one is which? You know, it's hard to keep up with all of them. And I'm just going to give you the short notes of who King Agrippa II is here. His great-grandpa, Herod the Great was the one who tried to kill Jesus by murdering babies in Bethlehem. That was Herod the Great. Another Herod, Herod Antipas, who was his grandpa. Herod the Great was his great-grandpa. Herod Antipas, his grandpa. He had John the Baptist beheaded. And then we have Herod Agrippa I, who's his dad. He had the apostle James martyred. And so we follow that. We got grandpa, great-grandpa, grandpa, dad, now him. Quite the family. This is like worse than the Kardashians. Uh, it gets worse. Anywhere you see Herod Agrippa II here in the passage, again, you're going to see this person by the name of Bernice attached to him. Who's Bernice? Uh, Bernice was his sister, uh, who he was in an incestuous relationship with. History uh, tells us about Bernice. It says that she was a very uh, beautiful woman. At the age of 13, she was married uh, to a man by the name of Marcus. 
Uh, the guy had a great name, but not a whole lot of uh, discernment in choosing a spouse. Uh, but uh, anyway, while Marcus was married to her, he died shortly after. And then after that, uh, she was married to her uncle, and he died. And then she was married to, to Paulino, the king of Cilicia. She left him uh, shortly after the wedding, so she was a runaway bride. Uh, she headed to Jerusalem, and uh, she, she spent a lot of time with her brother, Herod Agrippa II, and there was a lot of rumors that basically she was in an incestuous uh, relationship with him. So here they are, brother and sister, uh, visiting Caesarea, and Festus is going to catch Agrippa, and Bernice up to speed here. Verse 14, he's going to kind of share the narrative. And, and when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. And he said, look, there's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priest and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. And to them I answered, it's, it's not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charges against them. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. And when the accuser stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I, as I had supposed it's totally unexpected. They had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of these questions, I asked whether or not he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. So he recounts the story to Agrippa. But notice in verse 19, we have a key verse here in the story. He said, I had some questions about him against their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, who Paul affirmed to be alive. This is fascinating. We can gather two pieces of information here. First of all is that Festus, though he was a governor, he, had, he didn't know anything about Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says this, Brethren, this is why we must keep preaching Jesus Christ, because he is still so little known. The masses of this city are, of this city are still just as ignorant as Festus was. That was true then and it's true today. People uh, here where we live and, and around your, your circles and in, in your world at work, they might know the name of Jesus, but I think we underestimate how many people are really ignorant and are, they just really don't know about who Jesus is and what he came to do. I remember once at work, it was uh, nearing Easter time, and a coworker, a colleague told me, you know, Marcus, I, I know that Christmas is about Jesus's birth, but what's Easter all about? You know, it shouldn't shock us. And so I think we should be bold and continue to share the gospel and to share the good news of, of Jesus uh, with the people around us, not assuming that they know and that they've totally uh, rejected him. 
And so here's the second thing that we can gather from this. Not only did Festus not really know anything about Jesus, but that at every opportunity that God gave him, Paul proclaimed the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That was his message. He didn't get into uh, you know, debates with them on, on, a, on a scholarly level or anything like that. What he really wanted Fe- uh, Festus to know was that Jesus died on the cross for, for the sins of the world. He, he was buried and then he rose again. Agrippa, of course, he is aware of these things because of his family lineage, you know. And so, verse 22, Agrippa said to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. And so he said, tomorrow uh, you'll hear him. And so I bet the Apostle Paul here, he is stoked hearing the news. Uh, He's probably thinking, great, I get to speak to another uh, Gentile ruler. And this time, it's it's a king. And, uh, And Felix... Uh, first, he's, he's, he's had the opportunity to talk to Felix. Then he has the opportunity to talk to Festus. And then he's going to really speak to Agrippa. God is paving the way, again, part of his plan, I believe, uh, for Paul to preach the gospel before kings. He promised he would do that in Acts chapter 9. That you would preach among the Jews, the Gentiles, and even the kings. Now, most of what he will say to Agrippa is actually going to be in the next chapter. Uh, So you'll just have to tune in next week to hear Pastor Dale for for the teaching of Acts chapter 26. That's a really great chapter, and and so I hope you read ahead, and I hope you won't miss it. We're not done with our study yet, but I I just wanted you to know, little snapshot, uh, come, come, come watch the service next week. Verse 23, so the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, And he had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city at Festus' command. Paul was brought in. And so you have to visualize the scene here. I wish we could see this like on the screen as a movie. We've got Agrippa, Bernice, Festus. Uh, We've got all the commanders and the prominent men in the city. Uh, They come in. It says they come with great pomp. And uh, the word pomp here in the Greek is the word phantasia. Or, or fantasia, and it's where we get the word fantasy. It was often used of children or actors dressing up to get into character. It's a fantasy. Uh, I, I think of the movie Aladdin when he rides into the city with the Prince Ali song. You know, with, with everything uh, just kind of going insane, they're, they're welcoming into the city. That's what's going on here. And you have this great entrance of Agrippa and Bernice. They're wearing kingly robes and whatnot. Probably a bunch of guards, gold everywhere, wine to drink, food to eat. All to stand and address Paul. This short, hunched over prisoner. We couldn't have a picture of two more different people. One is in a royal robe and one is in peasant garbs. One with the freedom to make any decision that he wants and one is in handcuffs. We only have one source of what Paul looked like. It's, it's said that, you know, that he was a man of short stature, that he was hunched over, bald, 
uh, that he had a hooked nose, uh, that he was bow-legged, and he had a unibrow. They called him beetle eyes. And so you picture this little bald guy hunched over, bow-legged, crooked nose, uh, hairy eyebrows, uh, and then you've got Agrippa Bernice Festus. And they must have looked at him with such contempt as they were showing off the fantasy of who they were and the position that they were in. I'm sure they mocked him. And so here's the thing. You know those plans we talked about? Most people, when they make their plans, outside of surrendering their life to Christ and submitting to his will, I think they, if, they, if they're being truthful, they really want their lives to look more like Herod's life. They want to be in that position. They want to have power. They want to have money. But in God's kingdom and in history, the influence of Paul so far outweighs every single person in that room, including Herod. I had to give you an explanation of who Herod Agrippa II was because you didn't know. But Paul, his influence on the church and, and effectual in the world, his work so much greater than Herod Agrippa II. And if you would have told Herod Agrippa II that that day, he probably thought you were, it's a joke, you know. I think that what this speaks to is that our relationships with Jesus should affect the, relation, the aspirations that we have. Who do we want to be like? What positions do you want to find yourself in? And what attitudes do you have when you finally find yourself in those positions. You know, and here Paul is, he, he's arriving before a great throne. I get the sense that for Paul, this wasn't something that was intimidating to him. I don't think he thought much of them. And I think that's because Paul spent every day and every morning appearing before a much greater throne, uh, the throne of God. That's what impressed Paul. That's what Paul pushed towards, and that's what we should uh, push towards. That's what we're, where we should aspire to. And so Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present to us, and, and I, I, you know, I wish I could say it like he would have. It would have been, you know, real big an announcement, you know, like an announcement. King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. This is kind of funny. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place. I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. And so uh, another uh, a king here is, is before Paul. Uh, Festus finds him innocent, 
And Luke records for us, I think, a bit of a hilarious dilemma. Paul is appealing to Caesar, uh, you know, so Festus is like, okay, I, I need to send Paul to Caesar because he's appealed to Caesar, but I can't just send him to Caesar without any charges. You know, I can't say, well, dear Caesar, uh, here is this man, Paul. He, has a, a, he wants to have a plea with you, uh, and he is not really found guilty of anything. It wouldn't work for him. So Festus is, is in a bit of a, a conundrum here. He needs to find Paul guilty of something to send him to Caesar. But he also, I think, needs to uh, kind of sort this out with the Jewish leaders. Paul going to continue to have an audience with kings. And I wonder this morning in, in closing, as we begin to close here, would you put yourself in Paul's sandals? Begin to evaluate his situation. In this situation, you can have two perspectives. The first perspective is to look at his situation without the eyes of faith. And when you look at his situation without the eyes of faith, things are pretty grim. He's been thrown into jail, but he's innocent. He stands trial with governor after governor. Days are turning into weeks, and weeks are turning into months, and months are turning into years, and he's still in house arrest. Uh, there's no justice at all for him. And now there's this Jewish administration that has, this, uh, has not gotten rid of their bitterness towards him. They want to kill him. So there's a group of people that want to kill him. And that just when he thought that he might have a more fair governor in Festus come along, King Herod pays a visit. In the natural, you'd think, great, another Herod, a family full of people with a history of putting to death God's people. When am I going to get my justice? That is looking at the situation without the eyes of faith. But with the eyes of faith... What might you see? I see Paul here in the midst of harm, yet he is out of harm's way because he is in the custody of Rome where he is a citizen. He's got the security and the protection of the entire Roman Empire. The Jews can't, can't get to him. Every plot that the Jews have had against him are supernaturally and naturally being thwarted. He's in house arrest, but the saints at the different churches are free to come visit him at this time. They have access to the Apostle Paul, and so they can have conversations, they can meet with him, they can pray with him without the Jews being able to persecute or kill them. All of his needs during this time are being taken care of. He's being fed. He has a place to sleep at night, and he's not paying rent for this. He's able to preach the gospel to the world's most powerful people at the time. And eventually, when he does get his trip to Rome, he will do it on Rome's dime. He will be escorted by the Romans. And this is all he ever really wanted to do was go to Rome. If you read chapter 1, he says, all I want to do is go to Rome. This is my life's mission. A few chapters ago in, in chapter 23, verse 11, we learned that the Lord had promised Paul that he would testify there. 
He says, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. He gets to go to Rome. And not only does he get to go to Rome, but the state will pay for his travel and visit. Paul will write in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. His ways are so high above our ways. His thoughts are so high above our thoughts. His plans are so beyond our imagining, and yet he's in control. And so my final exhortation for you before I let you go is to allow yourself to settle. Just settle into the life that the Lord has for you. I would say during this time, abide in his love. Rest in him. No matter what uh, circumstances are going on around you. For so many of us these days, life is crazy Right now, I would say to you, don't try to fix it all on your own. Because you can't. All the things that you are anxious about and can't change, I would say, don't try to change those things. Rest in God's love during this time and submit yourself uh, to His will. Uh, why don't we, we bow our heads? I, I, I want to pray for you. Lord, so many of, for so many of us, life is out of control. Things don't seem to be going the way that we planned or the way that we might have hoped. There is trouble that surrounds some of us. But we believe that you're in this. We want to confess that you are with us. We make that the confession of our heart, Lord, that we have faith in you and we trust in you. We trust that you're sovereign. We trust that you love us. We trust uh, that you're with us. As we stay anchored to you, Lord, we trust that you will keep us. Father, in, in the midst of, of our anxieties and, and everything that is going around us, would you give us that peace that uh, surpasses all understanding. Thank you, Lord, that for everyone who is listening and, and, and even people who are not, Lord, we, we know that you have plans for, for each of us, good plans. And, and yet, so often, those plans look so different than ours, but we know uh, that you are in control. Thank you that you're a good shepherd. Thank you that you love us and that you lead us in a good way. I pray again for all my brothers and sisters that they would set their eyes on you and follow you. Uh, we love you, Lord. Would you seal this truth to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.